The sermon text is Deuteronomy 5, 6, 8 to 10, and 7, 1 to 10, 25 to 26, which you can find starting on page 86. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve to their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their, their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. This is the word of the Lord. This fall, we have been preaching through Deuteronomy, and we are continuing that this morning. We mentioned when we started the series that Deuteronomy is a treaty. The whole book is a treaty between a king and his people. It's a treaty between God, the king of the universe, the creator of all things, and his chosen people, Israel, who he has brought out of Egypt, out of slavery, and all the way up to the edge of the promised land. And so this book takes place as they stand on the edge of the promised land, and God is telling them what life is going to be like in the land where he is king. And he's also telling us what it is like to live with him as our king. And so last week, we looked at the first commandment that said you should have no other gods before God. He said that we should love him wholeheartedly and that we should not lift anything up above him. And this week, we get to the second commandment. The second commandment says that you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Just so we understand, the first commandment is a commandment about what God we worship. The first commandment is a commandment that we worship the right God. But the second commandment is about worshiping the true God the wrong way. And that's what we're talking about this morning. Worshiping the true God the wrong way. We're talking about false worship. And I'm really grateful that we have the opportunity to study this today. I'm really grateful we, we can look at this because I think this is one of the most misunderstood commandments 
in the list. And I think it might also be the commandment we break the most. This commandment, when we understand it, is one that exposes one of our greatest struggles in life. It's one that short circuits our faith. It's one that undercuts our ability to worship God. And so today, as we look at the second commandment, I want us to examine this idea. I want us to think about this idea of false worship. And I want us to see, first of all, the problem of false worship. Secondly, the, the prevalence of false worship. And then thirdly, the remedy for false worship. So the problem, the prevalence, and the remedy. That's where we're going this morning. Okay, so here's the problem. Here is the problem with false worship. If, if this is your first Sunday at church ever, or if you have been to church every single Sunday of your whole life, you probably recognize that there are different ways we can worship in the church, right? There are different kinds of churches. There are different styles of churches. There are different styles of music. There's different ways of gathering. There's uh, different cultures in the church. And that's part of the joy of our faith. That's part of the great thing about Christianity is we are a faith that, that includes all different kinds of expressions. And we see that throughout Scripture, that God loves that creativity. God loves that imagination. In the Old Testament, we see stories where he has gifted men to create the, the sculptures and the drawings that fill his tabernacle and that fill his temple. In the Psalms, we see him command us to sing to the Lord a new song. God encourages our creativity. He encourages our imagination. God created our imagination. And he wants us. He even equips us to use it when we worship. However, in the second commandment, he also sets a strong boundary for us. He says that when we use our creativity and our imagination in worship, we must not... Imagine him as something he is not. We must not imagine him to be a God that he is not. And that might seem strange. It might seem like a, a weird thing to put in this list of Ten Commandments. But this was a pressing issue for the Israelites. This was a pressing issue for the people as they were about to enter into Canaan and go into the promised land. And we see in our, our text this morning, Deuteronomy chapter 12, what Jen just read for us, that God gives them these very strong commandments. He says, these are the statutes and the rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on earth. He says, you shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods. On the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree, you shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. Makes sense, right? If they're going to enter this land with all sorts of idols, then it makes sense. You know, God has said, you should have no other gods before me. It makes sense that they should get rid of all the false gods so they don't actually worship those other gods. But then, listen to this. Listen to what it says in the next verse. 
you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. The reason he gives for wiping out these idols is because he doesn't want us to worship Yahweh that way. God anticipated that the Israelites were not only going to struggle with these, to be tempted to worship these wrong gods, but they would be tempted to worship the true God in the wrong way. And this is the exact same sin we see in Exodus. Right after Moses receives the Ten Commandments and comes down from Mount Sinai. Do you remember this story? Then he comes down and he finds that the people are worshiping a golden calf. And if you've only seen that story in a movie, if you've only seen it in a cartoon or something, you may not realize that in that moment they were not trying to worship another god. In fact, what happens is Aaron says when Moses has been gone for a long time, when the people are starting to get worried, when they're afraid that maybe Moses has died or maybe Moses hasn't come back, he says, give me all your gold and I will make this thing for you. And once he makes it, he says, this is the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. In that moment of worshiping the golden calf, the people thought that they were worshiping Yahweh through that idol. But that's not a small thing. That's not a little mistake in God's eyes. And God shows us that. He shows us that this is a sin he can't ignore by the way he states the second commandment. He says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Do you hear that? He describes that action of worshiping him through an image. He says, people who do that are people who hate me. And it will lead to generations of people who hate me and earn my punishment. Maybe you're thinking, well, why is this such a big deal? Why, is, why does that matter so much? Well, it's, it's pretty simple. It's because when we attempt to worship God through a false image, we are trying to turn God into something we can control. We are trying to make God into something less than he actually is. One pastor put it this way. He said, an idol makes the infinite God finite, the invisible God visible, the omnipotent God impotent, the all-present God local, the living God dead, the spiritual God material. That's the problem. That is the problem with false worship. It makes God small. But is this really a struggle for us? Does this commandment really apply to us? Is this something we actually wrestle with today in 2017? Well, the answer is yes. And perhaps a lot more than you think. Let's talk about that for a second. Let's talk about the prevalence of false worship in our lives. Because this command, it goes, it goes way beyond praying to cows. This second commandment, it is all about our desire to fashion God after our own liking. And as I've reflected on that this week, 
As I've been thinking about the second commandment and what it means for me, what it means for us as a church, I think this might be the sin that we are most guilty of today. Now, we're guilty of this in a few ways. We're guilty of it as a culture at large of making a false image of God, right? We, where, whether it's the idea that the God of the Old Testament is this vengeful and wrathful and angry God who has no connection to the rest of the story of the Bible. That's a false image we make. Or the picture of Jesus as this perfect and kind and, uh, and peaceful, this peace teacher who's kind of a pushover. That's a false image of God. In, in our culture, we have these false images of God. But... It's in the church where this commandment really comes home. It's not out there. It's in here. Because throughout history, the people who break the second commandment are people who think they are worshiping God rightly. False worship always begins with people who think they are honoring God with what they do. And I, I think there are two main ways that we do this here in the church. Two main ways that we make an image of God and worship it. And the first is that we imagine God is like us. We imagine that God is like us. God forbids us to bow down to images because he wants us to recognize that he is a living God... When God tells his name to Moses, do you remember the name he gives? When he's speaking out of the burning bush, he says, I am. He gives him the name I am because he wants him to know that, that he is God. He is a God who lives. He is a God who speaks. He is a God who listens. He is a God who acts. But for many of us, we interact with a God not as he truly is, but as a God that we imagine to be just like us. Let me, let me explain it this way. How many of you in this room, you can raise your hands, how many of you have relationships with other human beings? It's okay, you can say. Yep, okay. All right, now, now let me ask you, in those relationships with other human beings, do you always see eye to eye? No, right? And when conflict occurs, when you inevitably uh, have a point of tension, do you find that it usually happens with people that you barely know and rarely see? Or is it with people that you see a lot, who interact with you all the time? Well, it's, it's definitely the second group, right? We find all throughout life that the closer our relationships are, the more often we run into our differences. The closer we are to somebody, the more often we, we, we run into conflict, the more often we butt heads. That's why it's so hard to, to be a good roommate, right? Because when you live with somebody, when they see everything that you do, inevitably, they're going to see some of your flaws. They're going to see some of those things that, that they don't like, and they're going to mention that to you, and vice versa. My roommate is Melissa, my wife. And we've been going at this roommate thing for 11 years now. But I will never forget, and some of you have probably heard, I will never forget the, uh, the first morning of us being roommates together. Uh, I, 
It was when she told me that all of my life I had been getting in the shower the wrong way. I learned that, that getting in the shower where the faucet is, is the wrong way to do it. And in the 10 years that's passed and talking to other people, I recognize now that she is right and I am wrong about this. When you get in by the shower, the water gets on the floor. It's the worst way to do it. But when she first told me this, I was not so appreciative. No, it, it caused a big fight. Because the truth was, I didn't like the fact that she saw I was wrong and she told me about it. But this is what always happens in our close relationships. People see our sin and they tell us about it. But weirdly enough, for most of us, we rarely feel that way about God. We rarely experience that same tension from living in a close relationship with the perfect, righteous, holy creator of the universe. And I don't think it's because we're so holy. I don't think it's because we all live our lives in such perfect harmony with God's will that he has nothing to say to us. No. It's because we are not interacting with the living God. We are not going to his word and allowing him to speak to us and letting him call us out for our mess. We're not coming to him in conflict because we are not actually dealing with him. And we're not actually allowing him to deal with us. Instead of I am, instead of the living God, we have this idea of God. We have a few Bible verses that we've picked up maybe over the years. But generally, we assume that our God is pleased with us, that his preferences are our preferences. We live with an image of God. An image of God who never confronts us, who never sides against us, even when the people in our lives often do. And that is exactly what God is speaking about in the second commandment. In Psalm 50, there's this, uh, there's this place in the psalm where God is describing a people who are complacent in their disobedience. A people who commit all kinds of sins against them. But rather than just calling them out on that specific sin, here's the charge he makes. He says, you think that I am like you. And now I rebuke you and I lay the charge before you. What that means is we break the second commandment when instead of worshiping the living God, we limit him to something small, to something weak, to something powerless that we don't need to fear. We come to this command and we think about bowing down to, to golden calves. But J.I. Packer, he says, God's real attack here is on our mental images. Those metal images are what just flow out as a consequence. So that's the first way we break it. We carve an image of God when we imagine that God is just like us. And secondly, we, we, we worship an image when we imagine God is someone we can use. Now, 
If you're a Christian in this room, you would probably never say this. You would probably never say that God is someone you can use. You would not say that he exists for your pleasure. You would not say that he's like a genie waiting to grant your wishes. But Phil Riken, who was a pastor in Philadelphia, uh, he points out that while we won't say that, we often live that way. We often try to make that God for ourselves. Here's what he says. He says, people are always looking for a more user-friendly God. A God who can be adapted to suit our purposes. They say, if I do this, then God will do that. If I touch the minister, then I will be healed. If I fulfill my vow, then God will make me rich. If I say the right prayer every day, then I will get God's blessing. If I follow the right parenting method, then my kids will grow up to be godly. We say as long as we approach God the right way, then he's going to give us what we want. But here's what Riken says. He says, but God will not be manipulated. And when he commands us not to make idols, he is saying that he will not be captured, contained, assigned, or managed by anyone or anything for any purpose. He says God wants us to trust and obey him, not use him. Now, in case you haven't noticed, I'm a pastor. <laughs> and and I, I read my Bible. And, and I try to see God as he truly is. I try to let God confront me in my sin. I try not to imagine God as being smaller than he is. But when I read that quote this week, I was extremely convicted. Because as I read that, I realized that a lot of times I feel like God is holding out on me. Do you know what I mean? Have you ever felt that way? Like, God's holding out on you. Like, he owes me something. Like, my life should be somehow easier. Like, my life should be more comfortable. Like, my relationships should have less conflict in them. Like, my marriage should be easier. Like, my kids should be more obedient. I feel like God's holding out on me. I was talking to another pastor this week. Uh, and he was just sharing with me some of the challenges of, of his ministry. And he told me a story about something a lot of us in Boston deal with. People that we love, that we care about, who end up leaving. And he was saying that this family who was very close to him, who, who had committed to, to be a part of their church for years and years to come, had privately met with them and had announced that they were, in fact, going to move. And he said it was just really hard. It, it brought him low. And as we were talking about that, we were sharing that, yeah, there are a lot of difficulties in ministry. And we left. And the next day, he sent me this email from, from something he'd been reading. It had a quote in it. And, and the essence of this quote was, yeah, life is sometimes hard. But this is what God calls us to. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ. 
To follow Jesus is a call to take up our cross. To find our life not in success, but in sorrow, in suffering. The call to follow Christ is a call to non-conformity. It's a call not to conform to the world around us. And as a result, it means it's not a call to be comfortable. It is a call to discomfort. It's not a call to success as the world sees it, but to faithfulness. And, and that faithfulness might sometimes look like failure. That faithfulness might sometimes look like failure to the world. And so I want to ask you the question that I had to ask myself this week. What do you expect God to do for you? What do you expect God to do for you? What do you think God owes you? Be honest. Think about it. Now, if you've got an answer in your head, I want you to ask this follow-up question. What God promised you those things? Was it the living God? Or was it one that you made up? Was it a God who speaks through the truth of his word? Or was it one that you fashioned out of your own desires and wants? Out of your own ambitions and aspirations? Was it the God that we find in Scripture? Or is it a God who looks remarkably similar to the idols the rest of this world worships? Well, God tells us in this second commandment that we shall not worship Him like that. We shall not worship our God the way the rest of the world worships their idols. And if we do then we have aroused his wrath. This command could have been three words, right? It could have been no carved images. But God keeps going. He says, You shall not bow down to them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting iniquity on the fathers and on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. He says, this is no small matter. This is no uh, shrug, you know, I hope, I hope they get over this. This commandment tells us that you either love God and you worship him rightly, or you hate God with your false worship. And if we're being honest with ourselves, if we're looking at those two things, that we imagine God to be just like us, and that we imagine God to be someone we can control, who owes us something, I think we have to admit we all fall in this guilty category. We all worship false images of our God. But there's hope. There is a remedy for false worship. You might have heard that last part. I just read it a couple times. Where God talks about punishing to the third and the fourth generation. And maybe when you heard me say that, that God was going to punish generations for someone's sin. Maybe you heard that and you said, well that doesn't seem fair. 
If you thought that, you're right. It's not fair. Fair would be a lot worse than that. God tells us in the preface to the Ten Commandments, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. He declares that he is the God who has created everything and he has chosen us to be his people. And now we try to control him. And now we try to take this powerful God and make him small like us. Now we take this living God and we try to make him like the idols around us. It would be fair for that God to wipe us off the face of the earth. What does he owe us? But then you read the rest of this commandment. He says that he visits iniquity to the third and fourth generation. But then he says in verse 10, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Do you hear how those scales are balancing out in that verse? He says, I will punish to the third and fourth generation, but I will bless to the thousandth generation. Right? It is completely lopsided. The balance of God's scale falls strong in the direction of steadfast love and mercy and grace and kindness. It makes no sense. One author I read this week said that this verse comes the closest to 1 John 4 where it says God is love. This second commandment declares to us the heart of God. A God who does not want us to perish for our false worship, but a God who desires to redeem us, to save us. And that plan we find fulfilled in the person of Jesus. You see, God tells us that we should not make an image. But in the Bible, there are two images of God that are deemed acceptable to him. Do you know what they are? The first image of God is in Genesis chapter 1. It says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God says we can't make an image of him. It's inappropriate for us to, to carve him out of a block of wood or a hunk of metal because he's a living God. The only appropriate image of him is men and women living and breathing and thinking. Scripture tells us that in the earliest moments, God created men and women to live in obedience to him, to live in fellowship with him, to live in worship of him. But because of our sin, the image of God in us has been distorted. If you remember the story in the garden, the serpent tempted Adam and Eve by telling them that they would become like God when they turned away. But the truth was very much the opposite. Today, because of sin, even the best of us, even the holiest of us, even the most righteous of us only reflect God's image in the smallest and most distorted way. In a way that is completely distant from his holiness and even, Scripture tells us, deserving of his judgment. 
The first image of God in Scripture was created by God. But the second image of God in Scripture was God himself. Because God's love is so abundant. Because those scales are tipped so heavily in the direction of steadfast love and faithfulness, God sent his son. God the son, God himself took on flesh and came to earth. 1 Corinthians tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. It says, in him, in this image, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. God prohibits our false worship. God prohibits our image making because he loves us too much to see us bow down to something small. He loves you too much To see you serve something that is tame, something that is weak, something that you can control because that kind of God cannot save you. But Jesus, Jesus, he cannot be contained. Did you hear those words when I read them? That in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That he was before all things. That he created all things. Look at those verses and see your God as he truly is. He is the only one powerful enough to save you. He is the God who lives. He is the I am. And the promise, the promise of this commandment is that we come, when we turn from false worship and when we come to Jesus in true worship, when we come to Him in repentance and faith, when we come to Him and, and ask forgiveness for the ways that we've tried to make Him small, when we come to His Word and let Him expose us and call us out for our unrighteousness and sin, when we come to Him for life and for salvation, He gives us His Spirit. He gives us His holy and living Spirit to dwell inside of us. And Scripture says to restore the image of God in us. Do you understand what that means? It means when we trust in Him, when we believe in Him, we become like Him. The only remedy then, the only cure for false worship is looking at the true image. The only cure for those small and imaginary images that we have made in our minds is to see the true image clearly and fall at his feet. To see how much bigger he is, how much greater his plan is for your life. To recognize that a life of faith, that the life that Christ calls you to, it might be painful. It might be full of sorrow. 
It might be full of discomfort and frustration. It might even look like failure. But if he is making him like him, if he's making you like him, if you are worshiping that true image, then it means even your failure will end like his in resurrection. Your life will end in victory. Your life will end in transformation and glory. Your life will end in the presence of God for all eternity. And so lastly, the very last thing I want to say, if that is the case, if the only cure for our false worship is to see the true image of God, then we need to do whatever we can to look at him. And this is really important. Moses tells the people that they have to destroy the idols because they shouldn't worship God that way. But then in verse 5 he says, but you shall seek the place the Lord your God will choose. He says you should avoid false worship, but positively you must do everything in your power to worship him as he has told you. To see God, we must worship him as he has prescribed. And that means, very simply, for us today to be obedient to this command, we need the word. We need the reading, but especially we need the preaching of the word. We need the sacraments. We need this table. We need the church. We need this fellowship. We need this place where we get to see the image of God being restored in one another. Where we get to encourage and pray for one another and, 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 and love one another. This is where we see the image of God. As we worship Jesus, as we see this true image, as we come together here in word and in sacrament, in repentance and in faith, the promise is that we will become like him and the world will see him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for these commands because we know how much deeper they are than we could possibly imagine. We know that there's more here than we can unpack in 30 minutes. But Lord, would you cut us to the heart? Would you show us our sin and our need for a savior? Lord, would you allow us to behold Christ in all of his glory today? And I want to pray for anyone who might be here who doesn't know you, Lord. If there is anyone here who does not recognize that your scales are tipped in the direction of mercy and grace, if they don't know a Savior who has died for them, Lord, I pray that they would come today. I pray that they would confess their sins and cling to you and that you would save them. Lord, we pray in Christ's name.